0: I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher here at Grace and Truth Ministries, and this is this is Saturday afternoon. What I'm doing is taping our messages to an empty auditorium, and all we've got is one person here, Vic, and then uh, Mike's running the board, and we've got two cameras up here. And what we're trying to do is practice all this social distancing due to this coronavirus. Uh, if you want one of our DVDs, you can write to us on the internet, graceandtruth.net or Jim Brown at graceandtruth.net. I'm talking to you about the preachers in America are not telling the truth. Uh, the whole nation, it seems like there's not hardly anybody in the world telling truth there's a few men that are straddling the fence and they're just on the line but but they're embracing some things that is just not true the preachers today the reason for this coronavirus for the pandemic is the preachers in america the preachers but not just the preachers in america it's all the preachers for the last two to 3,000 years, even back to Israel in the Old Testament. Israel kept going after these other gods, other gods They went after the sun and the tree gods sun and tree, and the Bible names many of them that they went after. Uh, Baal, which was the sun god Molech, which was the sun god of the Ammonites and Israel embraced that. They went after the grove, which was the tree goddess. She was represented as the moon upon the earth, and the sun was represented as the fire. And for 510 years under kings, they kept going after that. You say, what does this have to do with the coronavirus? It has everything. God told them before they came into the land, before the judges, He tells them in Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, if you go after any other gods, I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and the beast. The pestilence is disease of all kinds. The reason we've had all of this disease is because the preachers are lying. They're going after other gods. All of these preachers out here, the Charismatics, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Church of Christ, the Catholics, they're all going after another doctrine. They're preaching. I keep saying this, Second Corinthians 11 and 4. They're preaching another Jesus, another spirit. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, another spirit, another gospel. And God says, when you do that, I'll bring these judgments on you, and I will carry you away into captivity with the beast, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And they certainly carried Israel away into captivity. The, another Jesus is actually Satan transformed into an angel of light. It goes on to tell you that later in the chapter. It's Satan, Metaschematizo, transformed, S-C-H-E-M-A-T-I-Z-O. And that means to, to disguise. Satan cannot deceive by dressing in a red suit, horns and tail with hooves on his feet he can't deceive that way he comes looking like jesus and he preaches another spirit and the holy spirit is truth so it's no truth It's it's a it's a phony truth. It says Jesus. It uses all the terminology, but it doesn't define anything. You don't know what it is. Another gospel. The gospel according to the scripture is the narrow way. Narrow way in Mark 1, 1 through 3. It's the narrow way. Narrow is the word thalibo. You don't even hear people talking about what narrow means. Narrow is the verb form of the noun. It's a noun. It's a verb form of thalipsis. And thalipsis is the word tribulation. So the Bible says we have to enter into the kingdom of God through tribulation. That's what it says. Now, they're not preaching this. These preachers are not. I'm going to what they're doing. They're perverting the word of God they're perverting and they are froward every time you find froward in the old testament there are many words for the word froward and they all mean to twist when a man is it'll tell you what these people are like it means to pervert and they're perverting God's word adding something to it and It's so amazing to me that people don't even care what things mean when they say something. Uh, Many things that people say, they say Merry Christmas at Christmas time. I was looking at one of my old tapes I did some months ago and it had had as a title on it, I got to kind of laughing, the title said Merry Christmas, the translation is of Merry Christmas. And when people say that, they don't have any idea what it means. They don't have any notion. Merry Christmas. Merry, when you look that up in Webster's Dictionary, did you know that they didn't say Merry Christmas back before the Here in America, that's something that picked up from the English. They would say Merry Christmas. And when all these movies come out about Christmas and people are running around saying that, when I was a little boy in the 40s, very few people, very few people, greeted one another with "Merry Christmas" at Christmas time. That was something you saw in the movie. But America has adapted to that. And when you look up "merry" in the Webster's dictionary, it will tell you it's an old, ancient word. It means to to amuse. It means to amuse, to have fun. To have fun. And a muse comes from the word muse, m-u-s-e, muse, which means to think or to mull over. When you muse through a book, you're thinking about it. And the alpha privative negates the word muse, and it means no thinking. So Mary means no thinking. No thinking. And Christmas is the mass. It's the mass of Roman Catholicism. It's the mass. Whether people like that or not, that's true. The mass is the focal point of Roman Catholicism. And the mass is eating human flesh. It's cannibalism. And when Jesus said, Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But he turned, and the Catholics took that verse and said, we're going to imagine something, we're going to add our opinions to what it means. So they said, if you take the Eucharist and hold it up in the air, I don't know why they hold it up, maybe it gets it closer to God or something. And they utter the words, hacus corpus eum phile. They say it turns into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's not, Jesus explained what it meant right after he said it. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and in John the 6th chapter, you have no life. And then he said, my flesh is meat indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. Indeed is the word A-L-E-T-H-E-S. It means of truth. And to eat flesh and drink blood was an ancient Jewish idiom. It meant to partake in a slaughter. And when you eat and drink of truth and it comes what is in your heart will come out your mouth and when truth comes out of your mouth and you tell people predestination is true and God doesn't love everybody and Christmas is pagan then they want to slaughter you and the Bible says in Romans 8 8th chapter that we are lambs to the slaughter so when you eat flesh and drink blood over there in Ezekiel Ezekiel the 39th chapter and in Revelation, Revelation the 19th chapter, the Bible is speaking of the end of time in those two chapters. In the 39th chapter of Ezekiel, God says when he destroys Gog and Magog, he's going to call the fowls of heaven, the eagles and the vultures and all birds of every sort to come and eat flesh and drink blood. For this great feast that I prepare for you, when I kill all these people, there won't be enough funeral homes to take care of all of them. He says the same words in revelation nine nineteen when Jesus comes back on a great white horse, and there's a sword comes out of his mouth, which is the Word of God. This just shows how little people know they don't even bother so Merry Christmas means to have a no-thinking cannibalism. So next Christmas, if somebody says Merry Christmas, say, I, th- I hope you have a no-thinking cannibalism yourself. Just tell them that and see what they say. Now, I'm talking about all of these charismatics. Nobody knows what baptize means. Baptized is the word baptizo and bapto, bapto, baptizo means to cover, and bapto means to stain with a dye, and the Bible says he washes from our sins in his own blood, and when he washes from our sins, then we are stained and dyed with the blood of Christ, if there's one baptism, Ephesians 4 and 5, it's blood, it's not water, there's much to say on this. Baptize was originally an infinitive. It's a verbal noun. It's a noun with verbal character. An infinitive is a verbal noun. And what is utterly amazing, you can look up. You can look up Baptizo and McClinic and Strong and he will tell you it was a verbal noun. I know what that is. It's an infinitive. It means that there is a fluid coming from an outer source upon the subject, and it's staining and dyeing him. There's no longer a a. But there's no longer a water baptism. Water baptism was a proselyte baptism. Now I'm going to talk about the proselytes this morning. I'm going to talk about the proselyte. the Pharisee the Pharisee laws the laws of the Pharisees and I use that term loosely it's not God's laws I've never heard any preacher talk about the Pharisees I'm talking about all these things these preachers have added to the Word of God these preachers these charismatics, will say God wants everybody rich then the Bible turns around and says there in Luke 6 and Luke 6 and 26, Woe to you that are rich. You've got your consolation. It's like they don't even know those verses are there. There was a certain rich man that fared sumptuously. He was had much goods and he said, he looked over at his, his goods and he says, I have much goods laid up for many years. I need to build bigger barns to lay up my goods. And the Bible says, this is a foolish man. God says, this night thy soul is required of thee. Now who will these things be? Um, Then he says, a man's life consisteth, consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. What you own is not riches. We're supposed to be rich in faith. Rich in God's word and not in stuff. People don't know what tongues mean. Tongues, I'm not going to explain all this. They've added all of this to the Bible. Tongue. Tongue means it's the word either dialect, D-I-A-L-E-K-T-O-S. Or it is the word glossa. Glossa means foreign language. Our word glossary comes from that. A glossary is a section of a book words. It explain words in the book that are foreign to the average reader. There was a different dialect of the common street language all over the world. And they had them when you went from one state to another state, they had a different dialect of the common language. That's the word that was used in Acts 2 when these Jews from every nation under heaven they were scattered because they went after all of these gods and they were all speaking different dialects they were scattered to all the countries of the world and so God says what I'm going to have to do is scatter you but i that, he gave them three laws uh, three festivals He gave them Passover Pentecost and the feast of end gathering this was the first month this was the seventh month and the in gathering was coupled with the Day of Atonement. And so they all had to come back when they were scattered. And they all couldn't understand each other in Acts 2. And so they said, how here we ever met in our old dialect when we were born. We've gone through all of this. They teach in these churches. The churches are not telling the truth. I've gone through all of this let me erase some of this and because of Israel God says I will send the pestilence the coronavirus is the pestilence it doesn't look like it's going to slow down and I believe in cooperating with the government on trying to be able to keep safe but it doesn't mean I believe that that the coronavirus is going to go away and that it's not of God because it is its now, I'm not going to go through all of these things. I'm just going to tell you they they did the same thing. Israel did the same thing that we're doing today. The preachers today are adding their opinions to the word of God. The Pharisees did the same thing. They added their opinions to the word of God. After I'm going to go through it again, and I'll go through a bunch of other things and show you what happened when israel was a nation from first samuel to second chronicles you say jim you keep putting that on the board that is everything that the new testament is about everything looked forward to that that was the kingdom of god kingdom of god or israel When the Bible says the kingdom of God is now in you, that's spiritual Israel in the New Testament. And from Saul, the first king, until the last king, Zedekiah, they kept going after Baal, and the grove, and Shemash, and Molech, and Venus, and Aphrodite, and all the gods of the Egyptians, all the gods of the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, they were going after all of them. God says, just for that, I'm going to scatter you. Well, he scatters northern Israel in 722 B.C. And he scatters southern Judah by Babylon. Northern Israel was scattered by the Assyrians. I've gone through that. By the Assyrians. And southern Judah was scattered by the Babylonians. And when Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, I'll just put Neb up here. When he scattered him, he took him over to Babylon. And it's about 650 miles from Jerusalem over to the Babylonian Empire headquarters at the city of Babylon. Babylonia was covering, they were ruling most of that region of the mediterranean and they were found on the euphrates river there in what we call iraq now when they get over here here's what the pharisees were doing and i'm going to cover some of this they got to babylon they were carried away naked they were they called it naked if all they had was a loincloth on just something around their private area and they they carried them away into Babylon. When they got there, if they could find a rock to sit out on, that would be uh, that would be pretty good because they didn't have any place to live. They had no temple. They had no laws. Nothing. So they set up a new system when they got there. They had some men with initiative, and they said, "Let's. We got to have us a place of worship. Place of worship." and so what they did they built the synagogue synagogue is not a holy thing synagogue we're talking about what we're talking about is the religion of the synagogue of the synagogue comes from soon and ago it means to assemble or lead to lead together it actually means assembly of God and that's not good it was the synagogue and what made it so bad is the men that were in charge of it they twisted the word of God and why you see that was an awful long time ago, wasn't that in five thirty eight b c Yes, sometime after that is when they started all this you've got you've got to go five hundred thirty eight years before you get to Jesus down here in Israel before you get to Jesus, What did he have to do, and what did the Pharisees have to do with with the synagogue. The Pharisees during Jesus' day they had their own personal laws that they had twisted when they they said, We've got to get this this law from Israel Law from Israel Israel and we gotta translate it over to the language of the Babylonians which was a Babylonian dialect of Aramaic. You had a different dialect of Aramaic throughout the world. You had a Samaritan dialect, you had dialects in Syria, and they had this Aramaic. So what they did, they translated the law. They said it was 613 laws out of the Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, that's what we call Pentateuch. Pentateuch comes from pent, which means five, a pentagram is a five star, five pointed star it comes from pent, so what they did is they translated Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy that's what the Torah or the Pentateuch was so they translated that over and said they had 613 laws. And that translation was called the Targum. The Targum. And they translated it over to this Aramaic in Babylon. And they, then they set up a rabbinical system, a rabbi, a system of rabbis. You wouldn't write it rabbis, you'd write rabbin rabbin is plural for rabbi so they set up a system a rabbinical system they had a head rabbi that, that corresponded to the head high priest over here high priest and instead of having a high priest over here they twisted God's word and they had a religion in this synagogue with this head rabbi and he would what he did he'd put his opinions on this translation, this Targum that was translated, and he put his opinion on each one of those laws as to what they meant. And they called this the traditionary law. I'm saying the same thing I said last week, but I'm leading into you to, to some different things. They call it the Traditionary Law of Moses. That was their opinions that they added to this these 613 laws. They put their opinions on that. And when you are in the New Testament, and you see tradition, the word tradition, It is, when Paul would say, I was more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers, Paul was a Pharisee. And he practiced this traditionary law. He was killing Christians. The traditionary law is exactly in opposition to God's true law. And these rabbis said, That the traditionary law was more powerful than the written law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they called that traditionary law Halakha. And then they had a written commentary, and this is something that was really, both of them were garbage, garbage, both of them. So whenever you're in synagogue worship, you're in something that's evil, not righteous. They, they built synagogues all over the world. They even put a bunch of synagogues in Israel. But there was the temple in Israel, and that was the only thing that really mattered to God. But we're the temple of God now. So this halakha was a verbal law. Verbal law. And it could only be passed down from word of mouth, and it could not be written down. Could not be written. This written law, this written commentary of the law was called Haggadah. And the Haggadah was a written commentary, but it could not be spoken aloud sounds ridiculous and it is couldn't be spoken aloud and they added all of their opinions to what these 613 and they said the most righteous between these was the halakha and they knew that a lot of stuff they said in the halakha was just their imagination now I'm talking about the halakha we've got even we've got books on this we've got all kinds of books That'll tell you what this is all about. They had something said about everything. Let me uh, get my... They had, later on, now this Haggadah couldn't be written down. This Halakha, excuse me, couldn't be written. And the Haggadah could not be spoken aloud. But eventually, they went through a series of development. They had a midrash, which means story, and they had all kinds of stories in the midrash that evolved. And about 200 A.D., 200 A.D., that's when God changed his mind and said, Haggadah could be spoken aloud and Halakha could be written. See, God says, I change not in any of my judgments. Change, shana means to mutate or duplicate. God says, you can't mutate my law. And that's what they did with their Haggadah and their Halakha. And about 200 AD, they incorporated the two and they came up with the Talmud. And the Talmud is so much garbage, is what it is. got much to say about that. Let me tell you something that they said. Let me just talk about gleanings for a minute. Gleanings. Gleanings are what's left in a field after they after they harvest their crops and if you drop anything when you're harvesting you could not pick it up the Bible says so so they had in the Mishnah they had what they what it meant when it talked about gleanings you remember Boaz when Ruth was falling behind him in a field and he left handfuls on purpose because Ruth was poor and he was leaving handfuls out in the field so she could come by and pick it up. Let me tell you what they said about gleanings in the Mishnah. <clears throat> in, the, in like manner, if a man dedicated his produce before it had become liable to tithes and then redeemed it, it is still liable to tithes. They went through all of, of details about things like that he dedicated it after he had become liable to tithes and then redeemed it it is still liable but if he had dedicated it before it was ripe and it ripened in the charge of the temple treasurer he afterward redeemed it and is exempt from tithes nothing is exempt from tithes since at the time when it would have been liable it was exempt what counts as gleanings now this is ridiculous what counts as gleanings whatever drops down at the moment of reaping if a reaper reaped an armful or plucked a handful and a thorn pricked him and what he held fell from his hand to the ground This belongs to the householder. No, it does not. They just stuck that in there. Well, if you get pricked by a thorn and you drop it, that's not your fault, so you get to keep it. Not according to the Bible. What falls from within the hand of the sickle goes to the poor. The Bible doesn't say that. What falls from the back of the hand, or the sickle, the back of the hand, you're not going to find that in the Bible, belongs to the householder. What falls from the top of the hand, or the sickle, Rabbi Ishmael says, Rabbi Ishmael was evidently one of the heads of the Babylonian synagogue, belongs to the poor. And Rabbi Akiba says, to the householder. Now, let me read something to you here. Let me go over here to Leviticus 23, 22. Leviticus 20. Here's what the Bible says you do with the gleanings. 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners. If you're reaping a, a field... You don't reap the corners. You leave them there for the needy and the poor. And you do not make clean riddance of the corners of the field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest. None. What's it for? It's for the poor. So the rabbis are twisting it and say if it drops off the back of your head, if you get stuck by a thorn uh, you get to keep that that sounds like the preachers of today thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger I am the Lord your God let me read to you out here Leviticus 19 see what they're doing they just pervert the word of God for their own welfare well what if I get stuck by a thorn that's not my fault doesn't have to be your fault you leave the gleanings alone for the poor we have a desire for the poor here in 19 in Leviticus 19 9 and 10 Leviticus 19 9 when you reap the harvest of your land thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of your harvest, you don't gather any of them and thou shalt not glean the vineyard neither shalt thou gather every grape of the vineyard you leave some grapes for the poor thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger I am the Lord your God you do what I tell you now they had they had I have got so many things in this Mishnah that they claim to do. They had, they got the phylacteries in here, how they wore their phylacteries. They got that out of the sixth chapter. They get that out of the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. The phylacteries were little, we get the word prophylactic from that, which means for pro phylactery protection phylactery meant what is going to protect them and they had several verses in those phylacteries they were little black boxes that they put on their forehead and on their left arm because it was closest to their heart and they had these verses and here's one set of verses they had in here one set of verses deuteronomy 6 Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words which I commanded this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, And they shall be as front as between the eyes. It's talking about it has to be in your mind. And whatever your hand finds to do, do it according to the glory of God. It's not talking about put a little black box with these verses on your forehead. This is what the Pharisees did. It's kind of like the Baptists stick in anything they want to. It's kind of like they came up with crackers and grape juice. And they think that they were eating that at the last Passover. There's one There's one thing that I cannot grasp. The verses they use for the communion, which is not communion, they weren't doing that. The verses they use are over in the 26th chapter of Matthew, in the 14th chapter of Mark, and in the 22nd chapter of Luke, and in the 13th chapter of John. And the Bible, there's one thing they leave out. When they talk about these things, they were eating the Passover and they have got crackers and grape juice. Let me read this over here in Mark, the the 14th chapter, Mark 14. This is the thing they leave out. They say, well, they passed around a cup. The cup was the was the New Testament. I don't even have time to get into that. Testament, came. means last will and testament. A testament has no force until the death of the testator. So when Jesus said this cup is the New Testament in my blood, he's not talking about eat, drink, and grape juice. Testament means last will and testament. So he has to die about 18 hours later before the testament, for they can drink the cup, which means to undergo a death. And they meant to drink the cup the rest of your life. Verse 12 of, of Mark 14. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb. I've never heard anybody read these verses at one of those communion services. Where's the Passover lamb? We need to kill that. Everything they say in these churches is corrupt. I, I want to get back to where I was last week what they did these these Pharisees they had this verbal law they called Halakha and they called the Haggadah the written law that developed into the Talmud I've got there's a section of the Talmud in in the you just look up Talmud in the McClinican Strong and it starts in the T volume on page 166, and it goes through through 1 191. So there's there's nearly 30 pages just on the Talmud, and it goes into Halakha and Haggadah. This will tell you about some of the things they wrote in this Haggadah. It's uh, it's kind of an insane thing. Under Talmud, it will tell you, and I've never heard anyone preach on the perverted laws of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue. That's why they called them Rabbi. the 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 book says the Jews divided their law into written and unwritten. That's a lock Agada. Some Jews have assigned the same antiquity to both, alleging that Moses received them both on Mount Sinai, and that's not true. Jesus said it wasn't true. And that Joshua received the oral law from Moses, and Jesus said he didn't do any such thing. tells us that in the fifth chapter of Matthew. And that Joshua received the oral law from Moses, Who transmitted it to the 70 elders. They had to make all this up. And these again transmitted it to the men of the great synagogue. Do I believe that? I don't believe any of that. The system of interpretation. They said they had to have someone interpret those 613 laws. That's what we've got in these churches. These preachers are saying, I need to interpret it. I need to go to school and get me a doctor's degree so you will understand what I'm saying. And then he says, when secret meanings, hidden wisdom, deep knowledge were sought in the letter of scripture, the midrashim, the Midrash, which was a form of development of the Halakon Haggadah, shaped themselves accordingly, and a distinction in their contents could be made. Thus they have been divided into halakha the rule, and Haggadah, what is said. Legal prescriptions Form the Halakha, free interpretations, the Haggadah. You could just stick what you wanted to in the Haggadah. Now, let me read some of the things to you that they would say. This would be in the Haggadah. This is equivalent to the charismatics talking about God wanting you to prosper and be in health. And they added their interpretation to what prosper means when it means well way. And there's only one way that's a well way. It's the narrow way. And there's a broad way that leads to destruction and many going in there. So we're in the apostasy. Apostasy apostasis. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S That's the word falling away. It means to a removal of stasis, standing upright, or staros, which come from that, which is the word cross. There's been a removal of the daily cross with all these opinions that preachers are preaching. Let me read something they've said here. Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi, is talking about the rabbis or the masters or the teachers of the Babylonian synagogue. They completely twisted God's words. When Jesus said, You make the word of God of none effect, there in Matthew 15, by your traditions, that word tradition, paradosis, means your verbal law. Paradosis. When men stick their opinions in, rather than going to what the word means, they make the word of God of none effect. Akurao, A K U R O O, Akurao comes from the word Kurios, which means Lord. And the alpha privative negates that word. It means no Lord. Your traditions, what you have added, your opinions to the word of God. I am not your Lord. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Now, Rabbi Yohanan says in the name of Rabbi Josie, it's talking about the Babylonian synagogue. How is it proved that the Holy One, blessed be He, does pray? This is one rabbi asking another. How is it that God prays? That is insane question. Prayer means to bow to the will of God. And how does God pray, Dear me, Dear me, I pray me that I will do this. God doesn't pray. Prayer means to will forward. We're to pray, Thy will be done. From Isaiah 57, 56, 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The house of prayer is for men to go there and pray to God and it's not for God to go there and pray. And that's what they were saying. It's just utter insanity. Under Talmud, let me read this. The Talmud contains many things which every enlightened Jew must sincerely wish had either never appeared there or should at least long ago have been expunged from its pages. The Talmud contains things that every Jew knows is not right. To the extent of paradise, the dimensions of Gehenna, they'll tell you in the Talmud how wide and deep Gehenna is or hell is. The size of Leviathan, the freaks of Asmodal, how these objectionable passages came at all to be inserted can only be accounted for from the great reverence with which the Israelites of those days used to regard their wise men and which made them look upon every word and expression that dropped from the mouth of instructors as so many precious sayings well worthy of being preserved that was very few of those then it says i admit also that there are many and various contradictions in the talmud and indeed it would be a miracle if they were expunged for the work that means to take out for the work contains not the opinions of only a few individuals living in a great society under Precisely similar circumstances, but of hundreds nay thousands of learned men of various talents living in a long series of ages. It's talking about as one new rabbi would come up, one would die, this new guy would add all of his opinions and it all traced back to the real truth the word of god and they just added everything they could just like the baptists and the charismatics and the pentecostals and so forth living in long series of ages in different countries and under many diversified conditions to believe that its multifarious contents are all dictates of unerring. Wisdom is as extravagant as to suppose that all it contains is founded in error. Like all, it's funny to me, they can come up and expose the Talmud and the Haggadah and Halakha, but people today can't define the words of the Bible and expose the Baptists and the Charismatics and the Catholics and the Pentecostals. Nobody wants to hear what things mean like all other productions of unaided humanity it is not free from mistakes and prejudices they're saying there's all kind of mistakes and prejudices in the Talmud which comes out of the halakha which was the twisted law whenever the new testament mentions traditions that's the that's the law of the pharisees and that's everything jesus said to the pharisees everything Was an attack on them. And he goes on to say. To remind us that the writers were fallible men. And that. Unqualified admiration must be reserved. For the works of divine inspiration. Unqualified admiration. Only goes to the word of God. Which we ought to study. To better to adore. And obey. The all perfect author which would be God of the Bible. What is the Talmud? Has taken the world by surprise. So it's such panegyric, I use that word, that means evil. The Talmud most likely has had. Let me read some more things that's in the that's in this. We heartily wish that some of the rabbins who wrote the Talmud had been content with discharging that which may be considered a duty and not laid themselves open to charges justly brought against them. He's saying, I wish they'd have told the truth of doing injury to the morals and minds of those who study their writings by their unnecessary and improper statements and details of which the triadis nida which we have here especially in view which treats the ministrating woman is so full. They'll tell tell you all about that. They take on so many things it's just it's outrageous. Now let me read some more of what they said in the Talmud. Let us let us, as the subject is so important, for a moment, consider a parallel case: murder is forbidden, so they're going to tell you how you can kill people. <laughs> That's funny. This law is of inexpress inexpressible importance. It is impossible to dwell too largely on the enormity of this crime of murder or to speak too earnestly too earnestly of the necessity of watching against anger, hatred, cruelty, and even possible form, which we can in any way participate in the guilt of this dreadful sin of murder. So they're going to have to tell you and express to you how you can murder somebody. But what would we say of a man who should write a large volume merely to describe the various modes in which a murder can be carried out? They forgot machine guns. They forgot Colt forty-five. Of course, they didn't have any back then. And the symptoms of decay and dissolution. Then he talks about, they tell all about baptism. Of course, they had a proselyte baptism, which was in water, grace, faith, salvation, regeneration, son of man, son of God, kingdom of heaven, were not as we are apt to think invented by Christianity, but were household words of the Talmudical Judaism to which Christianity gave a higher and pure meaning. It requires, however, a very slender acquaintance with the Bible. The New Testament itself is a much older book than the Talmud. Our author tells us that the Mishnah was compiled around A.D., 200. But I've got a set of books over here. It's the Literature of the Sages Part 1 and Part 2 and it will tell you all about these guys. Tell you all about them. The Literature of the Sages Volume 1 Volume 2 Volume 2 it's got Oral Torah That's the Traditionary Law That is Paradosis The Halakha The Mishnah Tosefta means additional things that have been added, the Talmud, and external tractates. That's volume two. This is volume one. Oh, this is the second part. This is the second part. This is volume one. Volume two is second part. Midrash, Targum, liturgy, poetry, mysticism, contracts, uh, inscriptions, and so forth and then you've got this set of books here this man lightfoot did the best work on a commentary that i've ever seen he couldn't cover every phase of it because he didn't have time in one lifetime and he was hunting in so many different areas. This is called, this is a five-volume set commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, and he'll tell you what the Pharisees meant when they said something. Whenever I'm really puzzled over some verse, if if he covers uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of Acts and some of Corinthians and a few other books, Sometimes I'll say I need to go see what Lightfoot says about this and he will have failed to deal with that particular point because he couldn't get to everything. But I've got some of the things he did get to. He's a brilliant man, lived hundreds of years ago and will tell you all about these things. Uh, Let me read a little more of this from the Talmud. Uh, some parts of the time that are unquestionably very ancient. They speak of the whole as a work of very great antiquity. They cannot altogether divest themselves from the fabulous notion that God gave the oil as well as the written law to Moses. And Mr Mr Lightfoot says that's not true. And Jesus Himself says in the Bible, I did not. You've got to read them all together. Let me read something to you out of, out of uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew 5. <clears throat> You've got to correlate these all together when you read them. Matthew, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> Matthew 5. This is, this is Jesus' first message. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me erase some of this. This is called the Sermon on the Mount and it takes up Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's on a mountain in northern Israel somewhere in the Galilean area. Galilee is, is a section up there and the Sea of Galilee is there. And the Sea of Galilee was also called the Sea of Tiberius, one of the Roman emperors. And the Sea of Galilee is up In, well, where's my, here it is. All right. Sea of Galilee, they said, was like a womb up in northern Israel. All right. I need a full. Here's the Sea of Galilee up here, and the Jordan River runs down into the Dead Sea. The source of the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. This is northern Israel, and Jesus is up here preaching on a small mountain up there, preaching to people in this 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of Matthew. And he starts off by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed, makurios, means fortunate m-a-k-u-r-i-o-s and he says and poor is the word p-t-o c-h-o-s Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is upon me then Luke 4.18 for the Lord hath known me to preach the gospel to the poor the emptied out a man is empty of self empty out Jesus didn't come to the rich at all. The Bible says, Warn you that are rich, you have your reward. Rich men oppress the poor, according to James, the fifth chapter. They run over them, they take from them. Rich, how hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven? Rich people, on a whole, are all going to hell. Very few rich people know God. And if they do, they don't decorate themselves with their riches and say hey everybody look at me now he goes through the blessed are the those that mourn over sin in verse 4 blessed are the meek. praus P-R-A-U-S the next verse P-R-A-U-S it means tame God has to tame us because we're like wild bucking broncs and he walks into the corral and jumps on us and Rogers to the ground. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You have to be hungry after righteousness. Then you'll be filled. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart. The only way you're pure in heart is God's got to give you a heart transplant. He's going to take away our stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. So he's talking about believers here. And then he's talking about blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. He's not talking about blessed are the people that wear our coat 45. Or he's not talking about something. Great peace have they that love thy law. Psalms 119, 165. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness. sake. Jesus said, if the world hate me, it'll hate you. If it persecuted me, it'll persecute you. These guys, these charismatics never preach about being persecuted. The Baptists don't preach about it anymore. They've just twisted the word of God. Blessed are you when men shall revile you reviled on means to defame and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you you're blessed and that's only when you start talking truth to him rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted the prophets which were before you now I'm going to skip down here to verse 17 Think not that I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not come to destroy. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I said to you that till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle will not pass from the law till all be fulfilled. I've given this to you before. And Mr. Lightfoot will tell you all about this. He goes into these verses. A jot was the yod. Smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, just a little small letter, and then the tittle was a little marking. It was a tit on a on a letter. This right here with the tittle there is a bayeth, b e y e t h. It's a bayeth, and a bayeth is a b. But if you knock the tittle off, it makes it a cough, a k. So one jot, one yod, one tittle will not pass from the law. That's what he's talking about. Until all is fulfilled. Whosoever thou shalt break one of these least commandments, a jot or a tittle, a yod or a tit on the Hebrew. What gets me People say the Old Testament's done away with. What is he talking about? yachts and tittles for then. And shall teach men so to do shall be called least in the kingdom of God. The same shall be called great. And that whosoever shall do and teach the jots and tittles. The same shall be called great in the kingdom of God. For I say unto you. That except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees the scribes and Pharisees the scribes Sophrith Scribe Sophrim S-O-P-H E-R-I-M the Sophrim scribes were the highest Pharisees of the law the highest Pharisees they were called lawyers it's not talking about some guy that practices law downtown in one of those buildings it's talking about men who would write the law all day and all night and writing out copies and they were putting their opinions in it their tradition so he said except your righteous shall exceed the righteous of the lawyers and the Pharisees you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Then he says those magic words. You've heard that it was said. Said is that it comes from the word light. You've heard that it was said by them. Them is a pronoun. All pronouns have an antecedent. Antecedent, an antecedent. Is the noun or pronoun that it refers back to. Them refers back to the previous verse, the scribes and Pharisees. So, what he is saying, he's saying the them that said is referring back to the halakha, the verbal law that was only spoken in the of old time. Which was 500 years before. In the Babylonian synagogue. That's what it's talking about. You've heard it hath been said. But them of old time. Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill. Shall be in danger. Of the judgment. Well. That's what they said. And then Jesus says. But. I say, I didn't say that. See, when they said that this verbal law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, Jesus is the one that met with Moses on Sinai, and when He says, "But I say," He's saying to the Pharisees, "You're lying. I didn't say that. That's not a part of the verb. the verbal law. Was their creation just like these guys that create?" In this day and time, prosper and be in health. Prosper is not the word prosper. It's not our word prosper. It's the word you hodos. And it means well way. I wish above all things that thou mayest have a well you hodos way. And there's two ways a narrow way and a broad way. You can't just come up and say, God wants you to prosper and have lots of money. It has nothing to do with money. Has to do with the tribulation way. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And only a few will find it. I'm afraid the charismatics are not going to find it. (coughs) So. (coughs) That's the narrow way. Now let me see. Where was I? Alright. 22. 22. Okay. But I say. They had a lot to say about people. They said, everything Jesus said to these guys was to correct their halakha. Everything. When he said, but I say, what he's saying is, I was God on the mountain with Moses, and I didn't say that. That's what he's saying. But I say that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whoever shall say to his brother Raka which means an empty headed fool shall be in danger of the council which is the Sanhedrin that circular judging council in Jerusalem and whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire now my mother in law I would say some preacher was a fool and she'd say before she passed away, she said, you go to hell call a man a fool. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying, you have to realize who he's talking to. He's talking to the poor in spirit. He's talking to the meek. He's talking to the peacemakers. He's talking to those that mourn. And he's saying to them, whoever says you're a fool for being poor in spirit, for mourning over sin, for being a peacemaker, for being meek, They're in danger of hellfire because they don't believe what you're believing, uh, blessed ones. That's what it's saying. So, I want to give you, I want to get on down through here. He says this several times. He says here in verse 27, You have heard that it, have, that it was said, that's a reverence to the Holocaust. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, what people say, these preachers say, Well, adultery is messing with somebody's wife. Or you're married and you go and mess with some other person. But the next verse says, That's not adultery. Next verse says, But I said to you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And it says nothing about fornication. Fornication, we think, is between two unmarried people. But this says it's adultery even if you just look at another woman and want to have her. That's adultery. Boy, doesn't that hit us all. And then he says down here in verse 31. It hath been said. It said in the. This is Jesus' first message. He is going after the Pharisees. They had. Mr. Lightfoot will tell you all about this. They had. Uh, the Pharisees had. In their halakha. They said that if a, if, a man, if another Pharisee was out in public and he saw a woman that was better looking than his wife or he preferred her to his own wife, all he had to do was go home, tell his wife, I divorce you. get out in order to divorce they had to have what's called a gettum g i t t i m for short they call that a get that was a bill of divorce And if you had no bill, the word bill is the word biblios. Biblios is our word, Bible. It means book. They had to have a paper of divorce in order to have what that did, what that did, that divided equally The estate women had no rights in the first century, and they had to divide equally. The bill of divorce it had to say in it had to say it had to say you get one half of everything I own. Only the man could grant the divorce, and he and if a woman is going to be divorced, she had the bill of divorce so she could go and be married to another. I didn't make this up. That's in Deuteronomy 24. Let's look at that. What Jesus is referring here to, here in verse 31 and 32, he's referring to Deuteronomy 24. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 and most people have never really studied this they don't know nothing about it this is Jesus attacking the laws of the Pharisees he says in Deuteronomy 24 when a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Jesus refers to that uncleanness in verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. The only problem with that verse... The translators put in writing, which would have been Biblios. But writing is not in the text. If writing had been in the text of the New Testament in the Greek, then this would have been right. But writing is not there. It says, let him give her a apostasion," is what it says in the interlinear Bible Greek. A-P-O-S. T-A-S-I-O-N that comes from the word apostasy A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S that's a separation from God and apostasion means to separate so Jesus said it had been said by the Pharisees by the by the Pharisees of old time when there were rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue it should have read where was the mistake made here it was made by the translators of 1611 they put a word in here that's not there in the original text what they said was let a man separate from his wife and say get out. That's what they said. They did not say let him give a writing of divorce. I hope you can understand that. They didn't say what it says here. Writing is not there. Writing, which would be Biblios, is not there. Jesus said, they say, In Deuteronomy 24, if a man man shall put away his wife, let him give her a separation. That's what the Pharisees said. That's what the rabbis of the Babylonian synagogue says. Writing is not in the original text. But you've got that in the original text. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, he's talking to the Pharisees, saving for the cause of fornication. So he's talking about this woman over in Deuteronomy 24 was caught in fornication. If she was, according to Leviticus the 21st chapter and other chapters, she was supposed to be put to death unless she was repentant. And it looks like it's talking about a repentant woman in that 24th chapter. Let me read that again. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement. It doesn't say let him put her to death. So evidently she has repented. It's just like David. He committed murder and adultery. According to the law he was supposed to be put to death unless he repented. And he did repent. He said, I alone have sinned. And give it into her hand, back to Deuteronomy 24, give it into her hand and send her out to his house, out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. People say, you can't get married again if you're a Christian. Yes, you can. If the woman can get married, can the man get remarried? Yes. This is some imagination that people have come up with. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorce, and giveth it into her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause this land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So that saying a woman can go and be married. I have women write me say, can I be married if I'm divorced? Yes. Especially if... Even if you were the cause, and if you repent, just like this woman has to repent. Now, the law is tempered with mercy. You don't kill everybody that sins. The ones that repent are forgiven. Now, let me go back over here to Matthew, the fifth chapter. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, It says, let him give her a separation. That's all. And that's what they did. But I said, you shall put her away, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Whoever marries her that's put away but without a bill of divorce. The bill of divorce was... Super important. That's why you go over here to Romans, the 7th chapter. Romans 7. There's an opinion among preachers in America. If you're divorced, you can't get married again. That's because you're ignorant. They're ignorant. They they know nothing about the laws of the Pharisees. Jesus' whole attack was against the Pharisees, not against the poor in spirit, not against those downtrodden people. He came to give them life. Look over here in Romans. How much time do we have, Mike? Fourteen. Oh, goodness. I'm not getting through a lot of this. Fourteen. Romans 7. And the Bible doesn't say anything about a bill of divorce here. It is saying that a person is married. You're married without the bill of divorce. There had to be. The women were not even recognized in the first century. Their vote wasn't counted. I said it last week. When Mary and the other Mary came to the tomb where Jesus was resurrected, they went back to tell the apostles, and the apostles say, "Your vote don't count. We'll go see for ourselves." And here in Romans 7. Know are not brethren for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which hath an husband. She's married. There's no bill of divorce here. She's married to him. <clears throat> Is bound by the law as long as she's married to her husband. So long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. She's never been divorced. But people assume she's divorced. She's not. She hadn't got a bill of divorce. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress if she's got another husband. If she's got two husbands. It's not talking about One husband been divorced from him and there was a bill of divorce. It's not talking about that. It's talking about she was never divorced from this one and she marries another. Just like the Pharisees would do. She shall be called an adulteress but if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress though she be married to another man. And people use this to twist and pervert. 1st Timothy the third chapter. You cannot pervert the word of God. And say what it doesn't say. And most preachers have done this. With this. With this. Chapter. Verse three. Chapter three. Verse one. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of of a bishop he desireth a good work a bishop then must be blameless and it is says the husband of one wife that's not what it says it says the anir a-n-e-r a man of one gunay A man of one woman if you're going to be a pastor you can only have one woman in your life you cannot be a womanizer and be single and dating a bunch of girls you can't do that that's what it's talking about you can't make this say something it doesn't say it means a one woman man that's what it means Vigilant means very perceptive about what's going on, sober, not drunk, and of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach a man has to have an aptitude for teaching all these preachers in these churches around America should resign they have no aptitude for teaching they don't define anything even this chapter it's kind of disgusting not greedy of filthy lucre. Kenneth Copeland says He's worth over a billion dollars. Now, what is a preacher doing with a billion dollars when there are people starving to death out there in his so-called congregation? Patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house. And you can't do that with two or three women in your life. Having his children, his objection, With all gravity, for if a man know not, this whole thing is about a man with one woman being able to rule his house properly. If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? He can't be a novice, a neophyte. He can't be a beginner to be a pastor. These preachers that want to pastor—I've had boys come in here say, "I'd like to preach." Should I be a preacher? I said, "No. You don't know nothing about the Bible. You want to be—you want to be a pastor without having studied." I studied for—I <clears throat> studied for thirty years before I ever started this church. Before I ever became a pastor here, you have to be able to give advice. I've said this before, what would you say if somebody called you from New York, and I've had this happen, and said, I really love Jesus with all my heart, and I want to live for him, but I'm a homosexual. What would you say? You're going to jump their case and say, you don't need to do that. That's a sin. That's not a way to talk to somebody. You have to say, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to desire a man. And we you need to pray about this. You can't just come up and jump somebody's case. Now, let me give you some more on this marriage thing. It's not what people think. Romans 7. Look over here in 1 Corinthians 7. Do I have any time left? Seven. Seven. All right. First Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7. And the Bible says in verse 10, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Put away means to just separate from her. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him. Let him not put her away. That please to dwell doesn't mean if she wants to stay. That's the word soon, yudakao. It means to think well with her. If she wants to accept the fact that he's believing predestination and Christmas is pagan and she don't want to fight him if she wants to fight the whole idea here's she'll have to leave if the woman is pleased to dwell with him let him not leave her well the whole idea is if she doesn't want to think well leave her for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband else were your children unclean but now are they holy. It's talking about the rules of Scripture. And the Pharisees said, if you had an unclean wife, then your children were unclean. Everything Jesus dealt with them about was about their halakha and their God. Back over here to Matthew 19. Matthew you won't even know why the pharisees asked jesus this question if you don't know something about their halakha they come to jesus matthew 19 verse 3 the pharisees came unto him tempting him saying to him is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They said if she burned the bread he could say, I divorce you, get out. All she could take was what was on her person. That's it. Her dowry, which was called a katuba, was in her hair. If he came in and said, get out, she could take was what was on her body and in her hair. Therefore, She wore her hair in tresses where she could tie coins in it. When you find in Luke, you find in Luke the woman that lost the two coins and she looked all over the house till she found them and she rejoiced and told her friends to come and rejoice with her. Every commentary I've read said they believe that was her dowry. Because if she left, she could take nothing but that with her. And when you find over in, well, I can't get to all of it. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where does not nature itself teach you that it's a shame if a man have long hair. I'll have to go into this next week long hair in that verse in the English long would be an adjective talking about what kind of hair but that's not what it is it's the long long is a verb it means to long her hair it comes from the word adorn adorn let a woman be dressed in adorn herself with modest apparel. It comes from the word it's comes from the word cosmos or cosmon or cosmeo, which is the word cosmetic. Got a word cosmetic from that. And we get the word come from that. And that's our word com meaning the hair. And comedzo is the word long It means to lengthen the hair in tresses. It's a shame. It's a shame for a man to have tresses in his hair so he can tie dowry in it. Because the previous verses say. Previous verses say the head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And it's a shame for a woman not to cover her head. It don't mean put a doily on her head. It means when she goes to pray to God to cover her head, which is the man, and go to his head, which is God. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about put a doily on your head. It says the head of the man is God. That's Christ. So when a woman prays, she used to cover her head, which is the man, and go to his head, which is Christ or God. That amazes me. I heard a preacher preaching the other day on that, and he's and he's going in circles about having her head covered and how that was the... Even if that was the custom, that's not what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about. I'm just astounded. People can read that, And they can't figure out what covering the woman's head is. When it says... Like it doesn't make sense. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, and every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered. What's his head? Christ. You don't cover up Christ when you're praying dishonoreth his head dishonors Christ but every woman that press and prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head she's got to cover her head which is her husband it's not talking about putting a doily on your head not in this context it's not then it goes on down there and says says does not nature itself teach you that is that it is shame if a man have comeo hair if he's lengthening his hair so he can tie a dowry in it and that goes back to the Pharisees and their verbal law their halakha, that they could kick a woman out just by saying I divorce you get out and that's why they asked Jesus could a man divorce and they say something they say and they asked Jesus, I'm out of time. They said to him, why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement? The word writing is there. They said it right here. And they didn't mess up on that. When they said writing of a divorcement in the Matthew, the fifth chapter, writing is not there in the original text. I've run out of time. Sometimes when I preach on this, do I believe you can get married after your after you've been divorced yes if there's if there's a bill of divorce there has to be an equal division of the property and then a person can go and be married to another I, I don't even understand the way America has twisted God's Word I'm out of time I just barely got started on this I will on I up. let's pray father thank you for truth Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the trials we go through. That's part of our eternal inheritance, our, what we're supposed to go through as we go to heaven. Fight our battles. Open up the doors for this ministry, and we'll give you praise for everything in Christ's name. Amen.